This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Power Moves, Ignite Your Confidence and Become a Force. Written and narrated by best-selling author Sarah Jakes Roberts and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Hey guys, welcome back to the Worth Your Time podcast. I'm so glad you're here. If you are a first-time listener, welcome. If you are an old-time listener, welcome back. So glad to have you. Today, my conversation is with my friend Lexi Hudson. She is a new friend, and I call her my writer friend because we've been texting all the time about writing and the things that we're pitching, the things that we um, want to get out there and published, and um, and I love that about her. So it was great to have her here in my kitchen at my home to talk about some of these things. Um, now, Lexi is a California native. She she actually came from Canada. She's a dual citizen, which is pretty cool. Um, she has a master's in social policy from the London School of Economics. I mean, that is pretty impressive. Uh, she loves philosophy. She loves writing. And we talked today about her time working in D.C. as part of the administration in the Department of Education. Uh, She talks to me about how that wasn't really fueling her creative soul. I mean, imagine that working for the government. Yeah, I get it. I've been there. Um, So I thank Lexi for being so open and honest with me. And I just love this conversation. You know, she's actually writing a book right now about civility. Um, Talk about something that we need more of in our society right now. And so we get into some of the nitty gritty topics about civility, discourse, respect, and uh, what's missing and why we need it and how important it is. Um, so we also, you know, kind of discussed she's been writing for the Wall Street Journal, for The Hill, for Quillette, which is kind of a hot new um, publication that people are really watching. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Lexi Hudson. Lexi, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Erica. Yeah, so for those listening, Lexi is actually sitting in my kitchen, which is not something that I do very often, but is very exciting. So I'm glad to have you here. It's beautiful. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so we share a love of writing, and that's kind of, well, it's not actually how we met, but um, we met through kind of work stuff, colleague stuff. We realized that we lived in the same city and like very close to each other and had a lot in common. So um, to kick us off, if you could just tell me kind of who you are, um, what what we should know about you, what things are important to you in life, and uh, just give us a little introduction. Absolutely. So um, I uh, kind of what defines me is my love of the way that ideas and storytelling can change people's lives. I'm really, really animated by kind of history and ideas, intellectual history. I'm um, just some biographical information. I'm from Los Angeles originally, raised in Vancouver, Canada. And uh, all my family is in Vancouver. I went to a small Christian liberal arts college there uh, called Trinity Western University. And there I studied history and philosophy. And um, that really just ignited my passion for studying and learning from the wisdom of the past. And um, But when I graduated from college, I realized that um, there weren't a lot of uh, jobs in the kind of in-house philosopher role. So I, I, did my, uh, I did my master's degree in international comparative social policy at the London School of Economics and um, mostly just wanted to be across the pond, kind of close to continental Europe and to study and visit and kind of touch and see these places firsthand yeah. that, I'd, that I had, you know, read in books about kind of my whole life until that point. So that was a, a remarkable year in London. Um, 
And then uh, my husband and I uh, got married also in Vancouver and then moved to Wisconsin. He uh, he was clerking for a federal judge there. And I uh, took a role at a state-based think tank doing education policy. And that was remarkable. Here I am right out of school, right out of the world of ideas. And I uh, had this opportunity to kind of sit back and conceive the good. You know, what are some policies or practices that could really help students? And then I would have meetings with, you know, local leaders and the governor's office. And then, you know, my work would be debated in the legislature and be passed into law. There's just kind of a this hunger for good ideas. And that was a really and a really short feedback loop between when I had an idea and when something could when it was actionable and when, when something could happen. And so that was really, really rewarding uh, experience right, right out of school. Um, and uh, I, I we, we moved to Washington, D.C. after our year in Wisconsin, and we got there in September of 2016, right before the presidential election, and I had not settled on a, uh, a job or what to do in, in D.C., and I was kind of planning around, you know, living in a world where Hillary Clinton was president, so I was looking on, you know, opportunities Where are we all? <laughs> in the hell, exactly. Um, but uh, Donald Trump won the presidential election, and uh, I had uh, served on um, another another presidential uh, campaign for Jeb Bush, actually, and was invited to um, serve on the president's transition team through a friend that had also served on Jeb Bush's campaign. So I worked on cabinet affairs on Trump's transition team and, and um, basically prepared cabinet nominees for their Senate hearings, their, their meetings on the Hill. We did a lot of mock hearings. They're called murder boards, preparing them for the congressional Whoa. hearings. It was, <laughs> I've never it was heard really that interesting. It was really interesting. <laughs> Uh, and I, you know, had just come out of school and I loved education. I loved learning. That was just what I'm passionate about. And, uh, I just done a lot of rewarding work at education in education in the, at the local level. And I thought I might as well go to the department of education. And I yeah. loved secretary DeVos. Um, I still, I still admire her a lot. And I was, it was, I got to know her a little bit on the transition team and was excited to serve with her. And so when I was invited to to serve at the U.S. Department of Education. I was thrilled. You know, I arrived just after inauguration, late January of 2017. You know, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, so excited to be there. Yeah. And nothing could have prepared me for what the reality in, <laughs> in the federal government actually was. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'd studied education. I knew education policy. I understood how countries around the world financed education. But there is just, like, a need to have um, a knowledge of how the bureaucracy works, like just how the machine runs. And, yeah. and I was at such a disadvantage not knowing that. Incredibly frustrating. You know, with all my kind of ideological, philosophical kind of knowledge, Let's it just wasn't, it wasn't, yeah. yeah, and it wasn't, it wasn't relevant. Exactly. And so, and I just so quickly found myself burdened and, and disillusioned and discouraged by the state of our public discourse. And, you know, it was an honor and a privilege to serve. And I'm so glad to have had the chance to be there, but I, I quickly, felt that that was not the most important place for me to contribute mm-hmm. to, you know, improving the state of our, of our, of our discourse and our, and our, our culture. And so um, working for the administration, did you personally experience any kind of like backlash? Like, you know, Oh, I work for the Trump administration and then people get angry that you worked there or something like that. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, not socially. Like I have mm-hmm. a wide array of friends across the political spectrum and, the fact that I worked for the Trump administration, I didn't experience any kind of personal animosity. I know some people have, and you know, uh, yeah, I've heard that from about some people. So interestingly enough, my uncle broke 
ties with my father, his brother, over the fact that I work in the administration, which is very strange. But that, again, didn't affect me. It wasn't like kind of a right, personal right. Uh, connection. But um, I... I kind of characterize it as a war on three fronts. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we had serious challenges with the uh, kind of some some of the career bureaucracy. Some of them were uh, the kind of career civil servants were paragons of professionalism, just incredibly. They they just want to do the right thing, and they it's a job, and they they wanted to help us make good decisions and give us all the information. But for others, it was you know we were the enemy, like the the rhetoric of the 2016 presidential election was exceptionally divisive and apocalyptic and nobody knew what was going to happen when Donald Trump was elected. And mm -hmm. so they definitely, this culture kind of, um, they acted out of self-protection and mm -hmm. wanting to kind of unsure of what we would do, not let us do anything at all. And so that was kind of the first front. The second front was, um, the, uh, stakeholders and whether it's like media or education stakeholders, and even some that would have been our natural allies as we tried to do, uh, promote federal policies that would promote local, educational opportunity, people that we thought would, um, you know, be our natural allies, we did not do a good enough job engaging them in the conversation. And so we had, you know, people that were bound to disagree with us, opposing us and people that, you know, we should have been listening to and kind of having conversations with oppose us as well. Mm -hmm. And so we were kind of, it was a very isolating kind of experience the, uh, to in that regard. And then lastly, you know, there's just the the nature of being in politics. There are, there were people on our own career staff that, you know, lacked integrity and you kind of see the best and the worst in people in, in the political environment. And and it's hard. To, it, this is my first and only presidential administration, my first and only presidential appointment, mm -hmm. so I don't have anything to compare it to. Um, but, you know, as a student of history, I have to just think that it's sort of the nature of the beast. You, know, you go into these kind of environments and know you're going to see the best and worst of humanity. And so... Yeah. Um, but all in all, you know, like I mentioned, uh, it was an honor and a privilege to serve. But ultimately, we I have a dog here with us today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my, my puppy, uh, Desiderius Erasmus Hudson, is is, uh, is joining us. So um, I'd excuse him. <laughs> um, but ultimately, I really missed kind of writing. I missed kind of the creative part of my day to day, and where that wasn't really rewarded or yeah, no, no one cared about you. Yeah, couldn't, I would, I right, couldn't. as someone working for the administration, exactly. you basically have to be. This is this is my identity now. At right. least my creative identity, yes. and that that's what I would find hard as well. Yes. Because I, I started my career, you know, working in a place where I could, you know, freely say and do whatever I wanted, working at a, a human events magazine or a newspaper, and then I then went to work on the Hill for several years and felt like. That's right. Stifled. It's very reductive. It kind of exactly what you said. It consumes your identity, and that's that's the danger. Uh, I think of any vocation, any occupation, where it become you kind of you your job and, and your job is you. But I think especially in DC, there's that temptation to kind of reduce people to the person they work for and their kind of proximity totally. to power. And that also took a toll, you know, just kind of constantly having to, to fight that mindset in my in, for myself, like that I am. Reminding myself that I'm more than my job and more than <laughs> yeah, and more than this administration. I, I find in, in Washington D.C. like that job identity is so powerful, and it's not like that here, which I love. Like I love, you know, I say one of the things I say is when I moved back to Indiana after spending ten years in yes. D.C., I just love that in the coffee shops instead of hearing people talk about like policy, that's right. I see people doing Bible studies, and I'm like, okay, people think about all kinds of right. different things outside of the bubble. 
of DC, and it's so much better that it's way. So refreshing because yes. life is so much more than politics and policy and and what you do. Um, so that makes sense. So you left. You guys moved here to Indiana. That's right. And so what what was it that brought you here to Indianapolis? So my husband is from Fort Wayne originally. Okay. And all his family is still there. They all live within 20 minutes drive of one another, uh, generations back. And so the plan was always to come to Indiana at some point. All my family is in Vancouver. We didn't have any plan to to go back to Canada. Is Vancouver um, close to the border? Is it? It is. Yeah, okay. about, about, I'd say two, two and a half hours from Seattle. Okay. Cause I was going to say, I, I do catch a hint of an accent. Oh, really? You have a hint of something where I'm like, she's not from here, but I don't know where she's from. Okay. So that's cool. What that's should we funny. know about Canada? Is there any, any misperceptions you see out there? Oh goodness. Um, Canada is a wonderful, wonderful country. Every time I go back, I just feel more and more love for it and grateful to have grown up in such a beautiful place. It's, um, it's, I think it's a, a blessing and a curse that Canadian politics generally doesn't have the same kind of, uh, centrality to the everyday life of Canadians. Like Americans tend to be much more politically Involved. engaged mm-hmm. and active and kind of zealous. Um, my mother is, who is Canadian is kind of the rare exception of among Canadians. Really? So she's just very, yeah, very politically minded, very politically. I'm just like kind of a culture warrior. Is that where she was <laughs> visiting from? In your when I was at your house, that's right. She was exactly, she was from visiting from Canada. Okay, so she had over. a long flight. Okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, but I think that because uh, Canadians, I think I think there is a lot of um, a sense that Canada feels left in America's shadow because mm-hmm. America is like just bigger and and you know more like, more populous and wealthier. Um, but Canada has many merits in its, in its own right. It's just a magnificent place. And so are you dual citizen? I am a dual citizen. Okay, that's cool. Exactly. Do you speak French? Un petit peu. Oh my goodness. Yes. That's uh, so cool. So you grew up speaking both. I wish. No, there's definitely a division between Quebec and the rest of Canada. Okay. Uh, that's a whole different uh, It's like kind of things that non-Canadians have no clue. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's kind of like um, most – the rest of Canada is – is um, it's mandatory that everyone takes French until – 10th grade, I think it was. It used to be all, th- all the way through 12th grade. Um, so the, the the bilingualism of Canada is only one way because no one in Quebec is forced to learn English. So, oh, so a, and, and all of, I think I did. I had heard yeah, that before. There's, there's a bit of kind of resentment and also because Quebec is kind of a net receiver of funds. Yeah. <laughs> I, I guess most provinces are. Um, but uh, yeah, there's a, definitely a, a stark divide and a kind mm. of a there's a long history of kind of resentment that goes back to the Plains of Abraham Canadian history yeah. where the English conquered the French and then let them stay. And and some might say they've been kind of an, a sore <laughs> ever since. Just history kind of, lives yeah. on. It's true. It's, <laughs> well, speaking of that, the, the, the uh, um, license plate of Quebec, uh, of Quebecois is um, je, je me souviens, which is I remember. So they, oh. they which is definitely not like a, a wistful nostalgia. It's like, we, we are not going to forget yeah. what you did to us, English. We saw you. <laughs> exactly. That's funny. Exactly. Uh, so do you like cold weather or no? Um, I do if I'm skiing or have a nice kind of fire and <laughs> something cozy <laughs> no, yeah, to go I, back to. I run cold. I feel like I'm constantly kind of fighting my, my low temperatures. So. Oh, really? Yes. So do I. So do I. That's like... I'm always like bring four separate layers wherever I go because I just never know like that's right how how low the air conditioning is going to be wherever right. I go. So even if it's like 105 degrees outside, I still bring two layers with me because I yes. don't know how it's going to be on the inside it's when true. I walk inside. So it's true. Um, so 
you mentioned, you know, civility discourse. We all know that that has gone down the tubes in the past couple of years. And it's not just because of Donald Trump. You know, he certainly did not help. That's right. Um, but I think it was going in that direction already. And so now you've kind of turned your focus to that and you're writing about that a lot. Yes. Um, you've been published on this topic or related to this topic in the Wall Street Journal, um, Quillette. Uh, I don't know if you wrote about it. You said you've been in The Hill. I don't know if it was about that topic. Yep. Um, yes. So The Hill. So you're getting it out there. You're kind of making it known that this is something that we should be concerned about mm-hmm. and there are ways to solve the problem. So and you're writing a book about it. That's right. So um, I wouldn't say that, but you have it on your Twitter profile because I know the book is not done, but like you're working on it. So tell me about your passion for this issue yes. and what is your approach when you're writing about it? Yes. Thank you. Um, my excitement about just a study of norms and this question of this, uh, this topic of civility stems very much from my, the two things that really define me, like the love of ideas and the love of conversation and relationships, like the, because the intellectual life, um, and the civic life is inherently the relational, the social life. And my thinking on the topic of civility is, you know, man is, in, is kind of defined by two competing tensions, like two competing facets that are intention. We are, we're deeply social, you know, we crave we crave belonging. We crave relationship. This is Aristotle. This is Marcus Aurelius. This is Cicero. Um, that man becomes fully human in relationship. And that in isolation, we can't really realize our, our full potential in that way. Um, so deeply social, but also deeply self-interested. You know, we have this desire to preserve and self-perpetuate. And those two things are very much intention. And how civility is the kind of informal social contract, if you will, like the, these, this organic development of norms mm-hmm. where you, whereby we come into relationship and say, I'm going to surrender my self-interested, you know, impulse for the sake of relationship, for the sake of being in community. If we walked around, you know, just doing whatever we wanted, whatever kind of thought or self-indulgent act came to mind, we would be, we would lead all of our isolated lives. We wouldn't have a society. Yeah. Um, so let's go to the square one element um, of where I, how I approach the topic, the civil life being the necessary, the intellectual life, um, and also just kind of from a square one philosophical thought experiment, like state of nature type uh, uh, type position. And um, you know, as as civility relates to our our discourse today, it's so true. You know, you mentioned that this does not, this definitely did not start with Donald Trump, and I absolutely agree with that. It's so easy to. to feel that it feel it feels that way because that's the this it feels like it's worse now than it maybe it was in past eras because this is the era kind of culminated there maybe right but this is also the era we live in this is the era we live and breathe every day so it's going to feel worse than like memories fade and we weren't around 100 years ago we're at the founding era which was you know we had we had a revolutionary war we had a civil war like these were very you know quote-unquote civilized societies that killed each other over differences of opinion and um you know it, it does often feel that way, that we are on this precipice of a, of a civil war. But A, I don't necessarily think that this is anything new. There are some new elements to our, our moment that I'd love to talk about um, that, that, that d- distinguish us from past eras. And secondly, I don't think it's bad that as bad as people think and feel for exactly the reason that you mentioned, you know, you coming out of DC and realizing that you, you have a conversation with someone on the street and the first thing you talk about is not politics. Well, A, you have a conversation on the street with someone, which is not something you do in DC. <laughs> and B, that, that, you know, the lived experience of the everyday American outside of the coasts and outside of DC is not like living and breathing this fury and this kind of rage that 
is perpetuated by kind of our mainstream media outlets, which I think is, um, and that, that kind of is the new angle of, of my book. And that's a very much an undertold story, like that there are these wonderful, that, that's not the lived experience of everyday Americans, that there's incredible stuff going on at the local level that is being overlooked because it doesn't fit neatly into the narrative of the left, political left or right mm-hmm. that, you know, has to galvanize the troops to get them kind of at the forefront of, you know, prepared to fight for this cultural war. So how much do you think, because I, I feel like, um, being defined by party, even outside of DC has gotten worse. Like, you know, if you say you identify as a Republican or you say you identify as a Democrat, like you do kind of get immediately labeled with a lot of things Mm -hmm. like, Oh, you must be this. Oh, you must be that. Have you seen that get worse? And how do you think we can kind of overcome party, um, bias, I guess, or something like that? Yeah, that's a really good, a really good question. Um, I have a, a few thoughts. I think it's um, it is true that that we have this human tendency to understand people by labeling them. Right. You know, that's how we think. We think which in makes categories. sense. Like, we think we that's think just in, how our brains work. That's it's exactly not wrong. Right. Yeah. If you kind of are in this middle ground, like we we want to we want to attach you to something we already know, so we understand, understand you exactly. So that's just a kind of heuristic uh, kind of a. Thing that about about human nature that I don't know if we can do much about. I think that that we can kind of in our own hearts and minds try and fight that. Like, okay, this person voted for Donald Trump. This person person voted for Hillary Clinton, but that's not all they are. That's not the sum total of their humanity and their personhood. They're also you know have kids. They also have hobbies. They also have interests. You know, and and kind of in our own minds fighting that kind of dichotomy that black and white, in or out, in or out group. Um, and, you know, it, uh, another, another, an, an important way to do that, this is one group I've, I've written about, and I'm actually the keynote, a keynote at their, uh, convention next, next month, uh, uh or, um, the, or an organization called Better Angels, mm-hmm. uh, that is intentional about getting people on the left and right in the same room, exactly as you and I are now, and having a face-to-face conversation, um, just an attempt to rehumanize people that you disagree with. And an attempt to kind of rebuild the civic friendship that's been lost because of, again, this na- this national narrative we hear, like, oh, Republican equals evil, Democrat equals, you know, horrible. Like, that's the, that's what we hear, um, and that's what, that gets easy to, like, kind of permeate our minds. But to have in person, there's a whole literature on contact theory, like how when you know someone, when you have experience with someone, you're, le- it's, it's, you're more likely to grasp the nuance mm-hmm. than you will, than you would by just hearing a caricatured example uh, of something that happens on the on the national well, media. and this is related to I guess this kind of is a huge contributor to why this has gotten worse lately. Um, is like social media. I mean, not I mean, not to be cliche. Everyone says that, but the point being, people are more isolated now because they're choosing to um, interact and have community online rather than in person. It's much easier to order your groceries online and have them delivered and never have to go to the store and see your neighbor that you think you don't like because of their beliefs that you've seen them post about on Facebook. And, um, we have like curated isolated existences, even if we live in neighborhoods or even if we go to our workplaces, um, because we can, but that has contributed to, those labels to where if you're only communicating with someone online, you don't see the whole picture. Like sure they have kids, but like all you're seeing is their opinion about this political policy. Yes. And then you kind of put them in this box. And so how much do you think the online culture contributes to this? 
That's a great question. It's hard to have a conversation about civility and civil discourse in our republic without talking about new technologies and social media and how how it's uh, and its influence. So it's a really good, really good question. Um, so a few thoughts. One, I don't, I don't. I try to avoid getting on that bandwagon of social media hatred, you know? Yeah. I mean, I I like it too. (laughs) I mean, I use it. Um, and I, I I love the story that I think is kind of this metaphor of, of my view of, of social media. Um, Microsoft a few, a few years ago created Tay the bot. It was a Twitter bot. And at first, and it's like, it was artificial intelligence. It was, and it basically learned from its engagement with people on Twitter. And it's, it's first tweets were things like, Human beings are the best. I love the world. Like humanity is beautiful. Like yada yada. Within like three to five hours, it was spewing horrible, anti-Semitic, homophobic, like racist. Like, and how did that happen? Well, because it learned from the people it engaged with it. Like it, it, it basically mirrored exactly mm. what it, like that, that's how it learned. And they they shut it down like within within twelve <laughs> hours. And poor Tay, uh, Tay the bot is now retired permanently. Yes. Well, well, because it was you know spraying all this hate, but it was artificial intelligence. But I think that you know it's kind of narcissist's mirror. Like it's easy for us to want to blame this technology that kind of it certainly can bring out the, the worst elements of humanity, but it's ultimately humanity like that you know i think it was alexander solzhenitsyn that said the line between good and evil runs through every human heart and i think social media more than anything else today highlights that you know people that think that man is inherently good like they say all they need is you know the the metaphor the parable of tay the bot to see that you know yeah (laughs) right um and, you know, I think it's a really good point that you, you kind of touched on this notion of uh, the way in which technology has enabled us to be more isolated. This is a, a theme that I know you've also read Tim Carney's new book, Alienated America, mm-hmm. uh, who talks about, you know, we are socially fragmented and, and more isolated and lonely than ever before. And, you know, he makes the case that technology can contribute to that. And that's certainly true. Like we have, as you mentioned, groceries delivered to us. We have, we have Uber. We don't like bike or walk anymore. We have, you know, all these different things. Exactly. Postmates. Um, and, and which certainly does enable us to do, be more autonomous and kind of have our own sphere and not be as kind of communal in that way. But I actually have an essay coming out that shows how that that these, there are a series of groups across the country that are intentionally using technology, using social media and using apps and these different online platforms to foster face-to-face conversation. Um, This new one was just launched in San Francisco just this past week called Civility. And basically, you know, it's it's launched publicly in the Bay Area and they're hopefully going to spread throughout different cities as demand grows. Um, But basically they, um, you know, you, for example, could say, I'm really interested in this question of the decline of social trust. And, and you would kind of create a conversation around that just on the app. And then you would um, send it to people or people would find it. And, and, um, and the, the idea is to, is to meet in a public place, like a coffee house, and have a conversation about it. And Civility has found in their kind of prototypes and their beta testing of this app that three types of people tend to like this kind of have, mm-hmm. have used their app. It's people that don't feel safe um, kind of having... I quite a conversation with people in their immediate peer group, people who don't feel safe having those conversations in their workplace or people that have those people, but, um, have like, ha- can have those conversations, but want other opinions as well. Like, they they kind of yeah. want to expand the realm in which they get ideas. And so I'm encouraged by, and, and again, in, in my piece, I mentioned many instances of, of apps and startups and nonprofits that have just proliferated in the last 
two, three years that are doing this exact same thing, using technology to foster the in-person experience. And I'm encouraged by that for two reasons. One, it shows that there is this demand for people to have thoughtful, intelligent, in-person conversation, that the rise and proliferation of social media does not um, has not has not replaced the people's desire for in-person connection. Um, it can't. Everyone, you know, people near universally know that, and that's in the literature as well. Um, uh, sorry, I think I I think I uh, did my two things in one. A that there's <laughs> and B that it's not replacing kind of the in-person experience, and it can be kind of a a tool to foster community as well. Yeah, you said safety. Like, don't feel safe asking questions. Yeah, I, that's what I want to touch on because. Number one, you know, sometimes we make fun of, you know, college. Oh, we need safe spaces from a speaker. Well, I, I personally do think that's a little silly. Like, let's free speech. Like, if you don't like it, don't don't go listen to it. But I do think there is something to be said about safety to ask questions. Because right now, I don't think a lot of people do feel that way. That's especially right. when it comes to these really touchy issues about that's racial exactly right. justice or about LGBT issues. Specifically, those are two really hot button issues that are obviously a lot of opinions on that. And so, uh, you know, I had an example this week where I had a question about something and there's not a chance in the world I was going to put that out there on social media. And I didn't, I, but I needed to ask someone who I thought kind of was on a different um, yes. side than I was on the issue. And I was scared to ask her, but I was like, I should be able to ask her though. She's yeah. a friend from church. Like, wow, I should be able to just ask this question, right. but I was so nervous. I thought she might like lash out at me or something, yeah. which is so stupid. I mean, thankfully, I you know this is just all over email. Thankfully, she was so gracious, like gave me like a wonderful, thoughtful response. Yes. And then I was like, you know, this is how it should be done. Like you should be able to ask questions. Um, but I do think that there is a problem right now with people feeling like they can ask questions or feeling like they can be honest. And like you cannot change unless you can kind of be honest or right. you know have have your you know kind of thoughts out there in the light. And I think that's a problem right now um, yes. because people are just shut down. Oh, you think that you're a bigot or you think yes. that you're a racist or you think that you're, you know, you hate children. You know, yes. like those comments, I, I, I just feel like there's just this a lack of, I guess, compassion for people that are kind of on a journey, yes. um, like a, a thought journey or, you know, trying to figure out where they stand or why they stand. There's been so much cultural change in the past like decade um, it's been so fast. I recently read this book, American Grace, about um, you know faith in America over the past hundred years or so, and they talk about how a cultural shift on you know some a major issue usually takes like decades. Well, there's been like a lot of shifts that's happened in the past ten years that normally would have taken decades or a century, and so it's really hard for all of society to sort of catch up with that in a way that we can all work together and be on the same page. Right. And I don't think people have an understanding of that. I mean, do you right. agree with that? Um, I think, I think your comment about the, you know, having people like having this lack of compassion, um, for people that come from different walks of life and might disagree with them, or just as you talked about, um, have sincere questions like in good faith with a desire to know, um, and now I kind of want to know what your question was. Too. <laughs> I'll tell you yeah. off record. Okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but I think it stems from a few things. Uh, one is a sort of epistemological hubris, where and this and this, this this happens when people feel like they're they have the moral right, they have the moral mm-hmm. law, they have justice on their side, 
and anything that doesn't fit into their conception of their conception that's key that's the operational word of of justice is categorically and automatically out and mm-hmm. and not worth engaging with and that is a really really dangerous trajectory for our public discourse to kind of decide outright that because this person holds one view that they are no longer worth engaging with and that's that's I, we're seeing that you know more and more in in our culture on both the left and the right it's like when a, people write a tweet and then they say such and such and such full stop that's right like there's no argue you cannot respond to this right even or, can, but. or ending like you know anyone who has this thought we have nothing to say to each other you yeah. know like that's a common thing that we're seeing i definitely saw a few people during the election and soon after if you're voting for donald that's trump right. unfriend me now that's exactly i right. saw several people do that if you support the abortion laws in alabama and louisiana unfriend me like, yeah, exactly like it's insert whatever it is um and i think that there's this perception that it's happening more on the left than on the right but i think that both sides are equally guilty like there are fringe radical Mm -hmm. zealots that have the kind of this kind of revolutionary zeal that um you know they just are so convinced this like like i mentioned this this hubris this pride that they have all the answers anyone who lays outside that is wrong and and you know not worth their time and that is um that is uh, that's that's exactly the kind of mindset that has led to bloodshed in, in past eras of social, political, religious division. I have the answers. You're wrong. Instead of like, and this is the whole notion of like what politics is, what diplomacy is. Like Clausewitz said, uh, politics is war by their means. Like let's have a conversation instead of sending thousands of battle, you know, troops into battle and, and like let's try to avoid bloodshed by having discourse, by engaging in persuasion. And um, unfortunately... We we I, you know we hear lots of stories about how there is less and less of that. But again, I'm I'm encouraged that there are people that are dissatisfied with this trend, and are keen for platforms like the one I just mentioned, the new the new startup called Civility and others, um, in order to have these kind of places for safe conversation, for places to to ask these questions and and engage with people that they disagree with or um, you know might have other perspectives. So mm-hmm. one thing I also wanted to touch on was um, in terms of like the isolation thing. One thing that I've seen bubble up in the past couple of years is, you know, people categorizing themselves by, like, a personality type. Like, right now, the Enneagram is really popular, Mm. which I love. Like, I love it. I (laughs) actually (laughs) recently gotten really into the Enneagram. Yes. Myers-Briggs. What are you? What's your number? I'm a four. Okay. I'm a four. What are you? I'm a, I'm like a three slash eight. Okay. I have a three wing. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. I'm sure. Writers are three and fours, I think, a lot of times. Um. So, and then also you'll see like a t-shirt maybe that says, I only like like three people in my dog or I like to stay inside and not talk to anybody or small talk. People talk about how much they hate small talk and that kind of thing. And I think there's been kind of, um, people have uplifted this idea of like, um, of, of kind of, but what am I trying to say? Avoiding people or it's okay to like, you know, not, not engage if that's not the kind of person that you are, that's not your personality, um, and just kind of like let go of almost like manners. Like you wrote about manners, let go of like being polite mm-hmm. or polite conversation. And I too used to say like, Oh, I hate small talk. Um, but I've come to realize recently that actually small talk is really part of what helps us get to know our neighbors and what helps us get to know the person that we see at the work meeting and we kind of chat it up before the meeting starts. And so I'm just, I feel like that too has contributed to the discourse problem. People yeah. kind of like 
labeling themselves a certain way. And then if you question that, you know, and that's just who they are and it doesn't matter what anyone thinks about it. But, but I think, I don't know, like, I think we need to open ourselves up to be like, you know, there's a certain kind of civility and, and manner kind of thing that we need <laughs> to keep in mind. Yes. Um, for the good of like this society. Yeah. Um, you know, I think one thing about you, you can say about, I guess, Republicans or conservatives sometimes is they're a little bit too focused on the individual. Um, whereas I think there are some things that require us to think beyond the individual and we need to do to think about society as a whole. And anyway, I'm kind of rambling on that point, but no, did that make any sense? It did. No, no, no. I, I, so a few things you said that touched on that, um, I think are really fascinating, really interesting kind of points and observations. Um, you know, you talked about how, first of all, people have, you know, wore these shirts, like, I am who I am, don't change me. Yeah. You know, like, don't, I'm not going to bother with niceties and pleasantries. Right, like, right. And this stems, it's like, it's all part of this, like, broader authenticity push, this, like, self-realization. Yes. Mm-hmm. Like, I am going to be my full self, and you owe it to me to cultivate To that. like that. Don't try and change me. Exactly. <laughs> right. It's very, it's very Rousseauian, you know, an 18th century philosopher who said, you know, uh, man is free, but everywhere in chains. And those chains were society. Those chains were civilization and social norms, he thought, mm-hmm. where people were expected to be decent to one another. Yes. So it's like, don't do that. Like, you ruined humanity by, like, <laughs> bringing people in together to society to um, to civilize them. He was, right. like, anti-civility, anti-civilization. He thought it was all all oppression. It was all anti, he praised the noble savage, the person who just wandered around in the forest in isolation. But that's like, that's not the lived experience. Like most people choose to live in community for for good reason. Cause like, like we were talking about earlier, like we, we crave community, we need others. Um, So I think that's a really interesting uh, observation to see this kind of revival of Rousseauian kind of philosophy, like this yearning for authenticity and like, don't try and change me. I am who I am. But the reality is when you live in society, you kind of, implicitly abide you say I'm going to abide by a social contract and that social contract is like complying with norms it's like that's what breeds social trust I I, I call the I call kind of the everyday common decencies the social uh, lubricants that just make it okay to make it barely enjoyable to just coexist because it's like I said it goes back to our desire for um uh, self-preservation and the tension mm-hmm. of our desire to, you know, be our fully our true selves and do what we want, but also living in society. And like by, by moving, by living in society, we, we choose to sacrifice certain things that we do and say for the sake of the common good, for the sake of, of living in community. And it is, it is interesting how fewer and fewer people are choosing to do that. Yeah. yeah. And on that same note, you've seen like the prevalence of, uh, you'll see uh, articles online, like 10 things not to say to, you know, a new mom or something like yeah. that. And a lot of times they're just like very normal things that like, well, what else am I going to say? And so people, I think going back to like the safety thing, almost feel scared sometimes to say certain things. Yeah. They think they're going to bother someone or offend yes. someone, even with like the very basic um, things. So anyway, I just thought that was kind of interesting, but um, yeah. I do want to talk to you about a couple of other things. Um, you said you went to the London School of Economics yes. and partially because you want to kind of be there in the middle of it all. Yeah. Um, so I know you like to travel. So I would love to hear some of the favorite places that you've been mm-hmm. and maybe, and also maybe somewhere you would love to go that you haven't been yet. Great. Love that question. Um, so the easy, the easy answer is France and Italy, the kind of these like cornerstone of the, 
uh, eras that I love and just kind of where some of my favorite thinkers and intellectual influences lived and wrote and um, created. Um, You know, I love the Renaissance. uh, So Florence really kind of nourishes my soul. It's just a magnificent city. And I love Italy. But um, also just kind of touch, you can really touch and viscerally feel the history. It's just very alive and vibrant there, kind of this era of, um, you know, human achievement where, you know, Michelangelo and Raphael and, and Da Vinci and the civic humanists revived this understanding of like human ideals in the classical Roman era. I wanted to um, popularize them, get everyone excited about the, these, um, you know, classical ideas and, and learning and just this notion of what it meant to be a full human being, a full citizen and live a full um, creative potential, like fulfill mm-hmm. our potential as human beings. Um, and I love, I love France, especially Paris, just because of the literary history there. Mm-hmm. And you know, again, another place where you just walk the streets and just the, the city is, is brimming with vibrancy and, and history. And I, I speak seulement un petit peu français, so I'm constantly, um, constantly improving my, my French. Exactly, <laughs> but I think um, France is, is easy. Like you, you just kind of get a, a deeper appreciation for a culture when you get, have even a little bit of the the, the language. Um, but I think my favorite place to, to, that I've been that I never expected to go uh, is Tbilisi, Georgia. Oh, interesting. I was, I was in Turkey. I was on a political delegation um, back when I, when I was in grad school in London uh, with the European Young Conservatives. And we were um, – and my friend who was head of this organization at the time, he was invited to an event in Tbilisi and couldn't make it. So he asked me to represent European Young Conservatives in – Tbilisi. So I had a whirlwind, like 48 hour trip to Tbilisi. And it was just an extraordinary place, like a place that I never didn't even really know existed, you know, like other than the when Russia invaded Georgia, and yeah. then people freaked out. You thinking, forget that it's a yeah, country. exactly. I know exactly. People were like, Russia is in America? Like, you know, people were confused Yeah, about that. you're like, you were um, down south and exactly, you Florida. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> There's that whole kind of confusion. Uh, that, 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 was, that was basically all I knew about Georgia. But just, like, what a remarkable um, culture and history it is. It's the old, oldest wine production in the world. It's where Stalin was from. Kind of not a uh, – kind of a notorious claim to yes. fame. But, um, but just a beautiful people. And we, uh, we visited a, a church from the 3rd century that is still a house of worship. And I never felt – you know, the air is so thin between you know, the life here and the life and the kind of the eternal mm. life to come. Wow. It's just a really beautiful experience. And again, like sometimes the things that are on your list um, that are not on your list are kind of the most kind of exciting. So. Gosh, that was such a beautiful line. I hope that you've put that in a piece of writing at some point. Which the, line? The air was so thin oh. <laughs> between. I don't know that I have life yet. here and life. Yeah. You should do that. Okay. I like that. Noted. That was beautiful. Thank you. Um, Anywhere you want to go that you haven't been? So very many. I mean, Argentina and Brazil are top of our list. A friend of one of my best friends mm. married a Brazilian. Um, Japan is very high on our on my husband and I's collective yeah, list. Yeah, I've been. Um, that's been. I've been hearing people go there lately. Yeah, it's just a, they're such a. Um, they're very, you know, advanced, but also incredibly traditional. It's kind of and like very closed. So they're yeah. incredibly strict. Very specific culture. Oh my word. Incre- yeah. And so, and I love, 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 love Japanese food, teppanyaki and sushi. Um, and- what's the movie with Scarlett Johansson and Bill Murray? Oh, I don't know. Lost in Translation. Oh. I oh my gosh. That. If you haven't seen it. Is it in Japan? Yes. Okay. And it's so good. Yes. Like it's not like a high action-packed movie yeah but for whatever reason one of my favorite movies of all time I think you would really like it I feel like that's kind of on your vibe yeah <laughs> you should see it lost in translation okay. 
must have been like 10, 10 or more years ago that it was okay. made. Um, okay. And also on that note of favorite things, I love to hear what are favorite books, favorite authors, favorite podcasts, TV shows. What are all of your favorite things right now? Okay. That's a lot. Podcasts, TV you shows, You can do one books. at a time. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Um, so my husband and I are in the middle of the new HBO series called Chernobyl. Um, I've been seeing stuff about that. Everyone should watch it. Okay. Everyone should read my piece about why you should watch it before you watch it. Okay. Oh, really? Before you watch it. Okay. Either either way. Either way. But it's just an incredible, it's not at all kind of this anti-nuclear propaganda. Obviously, Chernobyl, um, outside of Kiev, Ukraine, under the Soviet Union, this horrible nuclear meltdown. That's, that's basically the extent to which I extent I knew about anything to do with Chernobyl. Um, but we, what I, what I've, the show has taught me is, um, you know, just how it was, it could have been this, like the end of the world, like by this vast amount of nuclear energy, like spreading around half the globe and like leaking into the groundwater and like spoiling Europe's water supply. Like it could have been this serious global disaster that was mitigated. Um, and, and so instead of being this anti-nuclear propaganda, it's very much a cautionary tale of, of communism, of Mm -hmm. like what, of the culture of fear that communism breeds and how it just perpetuates this blame mentality of like how no one wants to take responsibility, this complete self delusion where, you know, I, I, in, in the piece I write on this, I recount some of the most chilling dialogue where the scientist is like, listen, Soviet union leadership, the core of our nuclear plant has blown up. And they just sit there like that, that can't happen. That's impossible. We are the best nuclear power in the world. That just that just couldn't happen, you know. And just like total denial, like and a total disconnect from reality to like they're just the, the propaganda of like we are the best. Mm. Mistakes don't happen, and and how that at least the initial initially like that led to the death of thousands of people unnecessarily because they didn't evacuate. They they sent firemen in to try and put out this nuclear fire and it's not a regular fire. Mm. Like they were exposed to unconscionable amounts of radiation and they died painful deaths, incredibly excruciatingly painful deaths where their cells like exploded within them within weeks because of that. Like it's just, it's a really sobering. And like, of course it's just really interesting. You just learned so much about the disaster and, and yeah, I don't know much about it at all. So so that you said it's on Netflix, HBO, HBO. Yeah. I'm going to have to pick that back up. (laughs) Yeah. It's, uh, I know, I know. It's worth it just to buy it for a month and watch it. And then there's Big Little Lies next month. I'm excited for that one coming uh, back Yes. <laughs> you know, it's so funny because because I used to live in D.C. and I had a blog, I, I get a lot of media pitches for things a lot. And I got invited to this, like, D.C. premiere of Big wow. Little Lies. Like, some big thing they were doing at the reception, like, goodie bags. And I was like, was, was, I wish I could go. I don't live there anymore. Was Meryl Streep going to be there? I doubt I would have flown in for that. But <laughs> if they had told me that, yeah, Seriously. I would have. Seriously. No, I don't think it was anything that to that level. Yeah. But um, I was like, man, if I lived in D.C., I would be getting all of these opportunities. However, I also probably couldn't go to most of them since I have these little children. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, um, and then, oh, yeah, so any – oh, books, books. Yeah, so – Books on my nightstand. I'm constantly in the middle of about 15 books because mm-hmm. Same here. it's so difficult for me to kind of get through even like a chapter of a book without like being seized and literally incapacitated get- by mm-hmm. inspiration. I'm like, oh, I have to write about this. Like an, yeah. I, have, I have a whole outline for a piece just from like this one, you know, yeah. thing. Yeah. Now I want to know so what you're reading for sure. Ta- yeah. It takes me like years to get through anything. Um, and I, and I like to be in kind of old and new things kind of simultaneously. Um, but I definitely trend to reading the classics. I'm rereading right now a book by a 
man named Jean Vanier. Um, he just died. Uh, very, very sad. He lived an incredible life. So it's, it's sad, but not sad. Um, he, d- he died just a few weeks ago. But he started these communities called L'Arche, French for Arc. Um, for individuals with intellectual disabilities. Mm. And uh, he's, he's French-Canadian, so from Quebec, and they, they're all over Canada and all over uh, France and kind of the world now. And he this, this book he wrote called Becoming Human recounts his experience um, living with in- individuals with intellectual and cognitive disabilities and how, and how even though they're very different, from the lived experience of people without intellectual disabilities, they kind of have the same experiences of fear and yearning for belonging. And it's just a really beautiful exposition of like kind of these very fundamental human needs that we all have and, um, and how, um, and how it's beautiful to live in a community like that because they need so much. And it's easy for people who don't have intellectual or or just any kind of sort of incapacitation to feel like we don't need, yet we do. Like, it's easier for us to ignore our needs for community, for belonging, for mm-hmm. forgiveness, for reconciliation, kind of all these different things. Yeah. But how it's, it, he, you know, is, it gives his commentary on how living with that community, you see how deeply people need. Yeah. Um, and it's a really, really beautiful book, just incredibly profound. Um, I was just in D.C. last week for an event. David Brooks has this new initiative called Weave, yes. the Social Fabric Project. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it was, it was an honor to be um, at that event and um, with 300 weavers from all across the country. And uh, I picked up a copy of uh, Anne Snyder, David Brooks's wife's uh, uh, new book called The Fabric of Character. And I'm in the mm. middle of that right now. And it's just extraordinary. It actually, you know, we're in Indianapolis right now or just outside of Indianapolis in Fishers. But, uh, Suburbs. Yeah, exactly, the burbs. Um, but at Highlight, the first chapter is about the Oaks Academy, a, cr- a classical Christian school here in Indiana oh. that um, – is is um has a huge emphasis emphasis on character formation and how every they're all about how you are not defined by your emotions you feel one way you act another way and how um you know it integrates this mind body spirit like this ethos of educating the whole child and uh, bringing you know and, and having a high standard for the child to bring all of themselves mind body spirit to the learning process and not just be sitting there because they have to sit there because their parents told them to like it's um so her whole book is kind of profiling different institutions across the country that are doing great work in kind of this moral, cultural renewal that that we very much need um, in our country right now. So that uh, awesome. her new book is called The Fabric of Character. So pick okay, that up. Yeah. cool, cool. And how about podcasts? Um, so I am not as big of a podcast person as my husband, but we have recently been listening to um, a few different ones. One is called The History of Philosophy Without mm-hmm. Any Gaps. Okay. And it's extraordinary. It's by a philosopher out of Oxford. And it's literally the history of philosophy with, with no gaps. And what's fun about that is like you, you're usually when you do a survey of philosophy, you just get the highlights. You get Plato, then you go to Aquinas, then you go to Kant, you know, but, mm-hmm. but he literally shows that the figures that we don't know but that Kant and Plato and Aristotle were responding to and who were influenced okay. by kind of these to, to get the kind of chronology of, of, um, of intellectual development and, and kind of the conversation. And, and of course, he does West, but also East and um, it's, um, you know, Eastern philosophers as well and, um, and shows how they all interrelated. And so it's just a, an extraordinary podcast. And also 
um, Russ Roberts's econ talks. He's okay. he's kind of extraordinary. He's at a, at the Stanford institution, um, Stanford institution, and he's an economist, but has just a wide array of of um, people that um, on his show that are not just economists. And he's such a good conversationalist, and he's good at like translating and kind of getting bringing out the best of his guests. I think that's what good, oh, good yeah. the good that's what good interviewers do. Like, yeah. They ask questions that they know their guests are experts on oh, and yeah, kind of totally. drop they don't they don't set them up to embarrass them it's not like a right. gotcha kind of thing no, at all it's no. just like um and so i just for your own information russ roberts will be here in june oh, okay. uh, at the liberty Fund. well i'm gonna so. check out his podcast yeah. since you said he's a good interview and i always want to brush up on my yes skills. exactly um how did you meet your husband we met, uh, it's very nerdy, but we met at a um, Federalist Society convention oh, okay. in Washington, D.C. It was uh, fall of 2013. I was in my senior year of college, and my husband, Kyan, was a, uh, an, entering his, he was in, an, entering his second year of law school. And we uh, met very briefly, and I wasn't very impressed with him. <laughs> but he, you know, was very intrigued by me right away, which, and I think the fact that I didn't like him only kind of encouraged him. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but we had some friends kind of in the works kind of trying to push us together, and he was very persistent, and um, he kind of, I don't want to say wore me down, but we, like he, it was it was really wonderful. We just never really stopped talking, and he, I felt very early on that he appreciated, you know, I fancy myself like a diverse mind. Like I don't yeah. just like, like one thing. I like art history, and I like philosophy, and I like theology, I like politics, and he would go and like read a novel that I'd mentioned offhandedly and then wanted to come talk to oh, me about that's it. Like so... just really beautiful. You know, Friedrich Nietzsche once said marriage is a long conversation and that's definitely the case with my that's husband. So... We never stop talking like every day constantly. That <laughs> kind of in a small way reminds me of something my husband did when we first met. It was like our second or third date mm-hmm. and we had talked about books one of the first dates and he um on our he must have been our third day he came and he had a present and he was like here i bought you this book and he said he had said his favorite book was the grapes of wrath and i was oh, like wow. oh, i actually never read it yeah. so he got me a copy of the grapes of wrath which i still have upstairs so it's funny so steinbeck who read the grapes of wrath that was the it was um uh par- not par- yeah paradise lost no not paradise lost east of eden yes, sorry east which, of eden. which is based on i've i've uh, read it sorry um so that was the book that I mentioned to Kyan. Oh, that so funny. she went and read, and it's like, and, oh, and, that's so funny. And, and Steinbeck doesn't do anything short. Oh no, it's like <laughs> so, you got to read it. And so Kyan comes back after having read East of Eden and is like ready to talk about it, and he was livid that I had like made a reference to East of Eden without actually having read it. He's like, "How could you do that?" Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm impressed. You're like pulling out like random, like really good quotes. I'm, I'm, I'm not very good at that, like remembering like the right quote in the right moment, but like. <laughs> You've got that. You've got that. Your brain must like just really like organize things in a very, very good fashion. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you. Um, any, okay, so this will be the last question. Yes. Do you have anyone that's like a role model or like a real inspiration in your life for kind of what you want to be or what you've been doing? Anyone that you would, you know, that stands out for you? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, you know, a lot of my role models and intellectual influences died about 300 years ago or 500 years ago. <laughs> well, they stopped their writing. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So I'm thinking specifically of... Um, if know, there's anyone that's alive. Oh, yeah. Um, so anyone that's alive today, I, I really admire uh, the writings of David French. I think he's incredibly thoughtful and, and um, he kind of takes the... I just wrote an essay this morning about how he takes the kind of ironic consensus building 
a mindset of persuading the opposition um, that one of my great intellectual influences, Erasmus of Rotterdam, actually who I named my puppy here after, that's something that we direly need. We need people that unfailingly try to engage the minds and and appeal to the better natures of people we disagree with and not just, as we were talking about earlier, throwing in the towel and saying, you're a lost cause. Like the moment you do that, that's, you know, this is what, what Lincoln yearned to avoid in the Civil War. That's what all of his, many of his speeches kind of appeal to. Like we can't just cut people off. Like we have to engage. We have to be in there persuading. We can't just. He he was doggedly committed to not cutting off half the country and letting yeah. them go because they disagree on the topic of slavery. Like yeah. Um, and so David French, I think, is an incredible model for us today and in, in our public discourse too. Yeah, I, I love that. You know, the thought of like if I'm bringing my best and you're bringing your best, and yes. then we're both assuming the best That's of right. one another in like character wise, then we are naturally going to make one another better and then society better as a That's whole. Right. I mean, that just makes so much sense. And it's why I think there's a quote that I don't remember and I'm going to botch, but it's something <laughs> like, it's something about like, don't tackle the other side's worst argument, tackle yes. their best argument. That's right. Because that's the only thing that's going to, you know, actually elevate the discussion and, right. and make a difference. So mm-hmm. I always try to remember that. Like if I see something like kind of horrendous from the left, I think a lot of times I think to myself, you know what, that does not represent everyone on the left. And I, I, when someone takes an argument from the right that I, you know, and says, oh, this is Republicans, this is all conservatives, I get really upset because I'm like, no, it's not. It's not all of us. It's not most of us. Right. And so when I do that to the other side, I'm sure there are people going, yeah, well, you're painting everyone with the same brush and you can't do that. That's so. right. That's exactly makes sense. right. And, uh, you know, this notion that reasonable minds can and have and will continue to disagree on important topics and um, that we can't sort of throw in the towel and, and say yeah. we're done with this conversation. Like that's the end of kind of civilized discourse and civil yeah. society. So, Well, I, whenever your book is completed, yes. I'll be the first to buy a copy. Thank you. And <laughs> you'll hear it here on the podcast. And um, I'm excited for you. So thank you for coming over and, and chatting with me today. Thank you, Erica. Thanks for having Desi and I. It was a lot of fun. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast, everyone. Be sure you're following me on social media. Instagram at Erica81 is the most fun place to be. I would love to uh, follow you there and just keep in touch. Uh, Also, uh, sign up for my email list on ericaanderson.com. And lastly, don't forget to leave me a rating and review on iTunes if you've been enjoying the show. It means the world to me. I'm looking forward to seeing you next week. So until then, have a good one. 